0: And I want to talk to you this morning on the, on the concept of Jesus versus religion. You know there's a difference, right? And a lot of people, probably people even in the room today, have had their fill of religion. And if somebody tries to stuff one more bite of it in their mouth, they're going to erupt. They're, they're just at a place where they are saying, I can't take any more Bible Bell Southern conservative evangelical religion. And, yeah, I'm with you. It's me and her. We're just like, yeah. Um, some of you just don't know what I'm talking about yet, and so you're afraid to amen it ahead of time. But just hang on. You'll have opportunity. But, but I, I really was just studying. I was in the prayer room over at the House of Prayer a couple of weeks ago. I was just reading through Luke's gospel, and I just saw it in back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back passages. I'm only going to look at uh, uh, four scenes in Luke 5 and 6 today. But I, I, I want to let you know, and I think you know this, and if you're new here, it's your first time, wow, I'm glad you're here today and you'll hear it on your first time as a guest here at Newbridge. The last thing we want to do is, is promote or perpetuate or propagate religion. And we really feel like that our assignment, part of our assignment from the Lord, is to constantly draw a line of delineation between cultural Christianity, religion, whether it's Um, It doesn't matter what type of tradition it might be. Um, Between that and New Testament, organic faith and walking with Jesus. And so nobody does that better than the Holy Spirit when he just lines up Jesus against the Pharisees. And you just see the Pharisees embodying everything that we don't want to be. And I, I, I want to go ahead and tell you something. You may not like me for saying this, but I'm just going to go ahead and tell you. There's a little Pharisee in your heart who wants to take over. In in my heart, too. You know, I would love to say that all elements of religion are completely dead in all of us. I don't think that's actually going to be the case until we are glorified. I think we are all susceptible to religion. And what's amazing is we're kind of blind to it in ourselves, but we always see it in the other guy. And so what I want to do is I want that scrutiny, not for us to gang up on religious people today, although that might happen because the scriptures do it and the Pharisee. but I really want you to look at your own heart. And I, I just think that's what we do with scripture that's confrontational instead of saying, yeah, she needs to hear that message. No, you and I need to hear this message, right? Okay, I'm already in trouble with some of you. All right, let's just see what the Lord does this morning. Luke 5, verse 27, is speaking of Jesus, and it says, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. That's what they do, by the way. Grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick i have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, eat and drink. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. Here's a kingdom principle for you, spoken by the Savior. New wine must, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. So we're in the furnace this morning, and she does this regularly. Miss Dorothy's in there, and we're praying. And I can't tell you how often she does this. She's just got a a discerning ear, and she, she starts praying these scriptures, has no clue when I'm preaching this morning. And so I'm just like, Lord, you're just awesome, because if Dorothy's getting it and I'm getting it, I feel pretty good about this morning. (laughs) Amen. We're going to get down into chapter number six, and um, I'm wearing a watch, but I'm not going to look at it today, so if you got to go, you got to go, but I'm about to go, so here we go. Here we go. I just want to take four different points in these verses and then into chapter six, and I just want to talk to you a little bit this morning about Jesus versus religion. And I want us to really be able to discern on a growing level the difference between him and them. And again, look at your own heart this morning because it's really healthy to do that. No condemnation this morning, but I guarantee you there's opportunity for evaluation and repentance for each of us. So let's, let's just start back up there in verse number 27. I'll give you the first principle, and it's this. Jesus is open religion is closed. Jesus is open and religion is closed. Watch Jesus tear down walls up in verses 27 through 29. The Bible says that Jesus is going out and it's after this. He's already been going through headbutting sessions with the Pharisees and the legalists and those that try to control him. So after those things, Jesus goes out and he sees a guy named Levi. Somebody shout what Levi's name would become. Matthew. He becomes the disciple named Matthew, but here's the day of his conversion. His name is Levi. He's sitting at the tax booth and Jesus says two words to to Levi. He says, follow me. And Matthew's response, Levi's response is that he leaves everything. He rose and followed Jesus. And then he goes and he makes him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Okay. I'm going to really condense this down because you may not like the IRS. You, you may not like you know the idea of, of hanging out with auditors. You may not want them. We get a little nervous around that word auditing or the IRS. But, but in the day that Matthew, excuse me, Luke is writing here, the day in which Jesus is living, tax collectors are despised. They're hated, and let me tell you why. The Roman taxation system would go into a territory and they would say, we're going to tax this territory for X amount of dollars every year. Who would like to be the tax gatherer? And people would literally bid to become the tax gatherer in that arena because here's how they made their living. All they had to do was meet the quota that the Roman Empire said had to be met for that area every year. And then anything above and beyond that they taxed, they put in their pockets. And so tax collectors, especially Jewish ones, were seen as traitors because they were exploiting their fellow countrymen on behalf of the Roman pagan uh, heathen system. And then on top of all of that, they're stealing from the people by dishonestly taxing them. And so that had gone on for a long time. And so they're some of the most despised people. They couldn't participate in worship. They couldn't go into synagogues. They were ostracized. They were seen as dogs and they were cast in with people like adulterers and murderers and prostitutes. Anytime you see in the New Testament when publicans or tax gatherers are mentioned, they're all all lumped in with all of these other notorious sins. And so Jesus is out ministering. He's already been butting heads. I say that. They're trying to butt heads with him. He's just not playing their game. And so on, after, after that series of head-butting incidents with the Pharisees, what does Jesus do? He reaches into the very bottom of the cultural berry, uh, barrel in Israel. And he says, I think I want a tax gatherer on my team, and I think I want it to be that guy, Levi. And he literally goes to the most despised people group in the country and he says, I'm gonna tear down a wall right here. Because Orthodox Judaism of that day, led by the scribes and the Pharisees, would not let Levi have a fighting chance at redemption or intimacy with God. They left him in his sins. They built up walls, said, You can't be a part of what we're doing for God. And Levi is on his own. And yet Jesus says, I mastered the art of tearing down walls, and I want this guy to be with me in paradise forever. Levi, follow me. And he does. He was just waiting on an invitation. Nobody had to yell at him about his sin. Nobody had to tell him how rotten he was. He had had that reinforced by everything around him for years on end. But when he met the master and there was something in that call that Jesus put on his life, and Jesus in an instant tears down that wall, Matthew leaves everything. And then Matthew, I I call him Matthew Levi. I'm going to stick with Matthew. Um, Matthew goes home and he throws a party. How many of you know, and you're not going to like this, but that's okay, I'm going after the religious spirit today. How many of you know that lost people know how to party better than Christians, amen? They, they, listen, we may not agree with everything they do, but they're a lot more loose than us in the sense of they know how to exhale, they know how to enjoy each other, they may be involved in activities that we, we might frown on. But I'm going to tell you something, not enough Christians view the Christian life as a feast and a party. Too many of us view it as a funeral. And a fast, a perpetual fast. And, 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 and not enough of us recognize that, that if you read the Old Testament, the, the, the history of the Hebrew people is festivals and feasts. And they actually really love to celebrate God and enjoy each other. And so what does Matthew do? He says, man, I just got connected to the master. Something's happening in me. I want to throw a party. The problem is he doesn't have any redeemed friends, so it's a party full of notorious sinners. You wouldn't even go. You would look at the person next to you and say, you're not going to that party, are you? You can't go there. We're Christians. Some of y'all are more spiritual than Jesus because Jesus went to the party. Come on. Jesus went. And so as he does, the, the watchdogs are after him. Look in verse 30 because the Pharisees and the scribes that representing the religious spirit or just man's religion here. Jesus tears down walls. They reinforce them. The Bible says that the Pharisees and their scribes, those are the powerhouse political religious leaders and their scholars. The scribes were the professional Bible students. They grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we're seeing the kind of the way religion moves. Religion doesn't always bring the tough questions to Jesus because they don't want to hear a valid answer that'll strip them of their religious entitlement. So what a religious spirit does is it goes after unsuspecting disciples of Jesus. It comes after the followers of Jesus. It comes after you. It comes after me. And these are people that appear with uh, the the posture and the air of having some insights that commoners like us don't have. And so they want to kind of use that leverage. And they're not not literally asking Jesus, hey, what is it in the kingdom that allows you the freedom to go and eat with these people that normally I wouldn't eat with? Could you enlighten me, Jesus? Could you enlighten me, disciples? They're not asking because they want an answer. They're actually making a statement with a question mark. What they're saying is, you can't do that. You can't hang out with the tax gatherers and all the host of accompanying sinners. Their whole religion is based on isolation. And that was extrapolated from a biblical principle to the Hebrews of separation. I want to tell you something. The, the biblical reality of come out from among them and be ye separate, and that's in your Bible, there is application for that. But if it's not approached with the, the grace, the mercy, the love, and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that separation will always become isolation. It will be a kingdom segregation. It will be, we are better than, therefore we, we don't go near them. And that's what had happened for the Pharisees and their scribes. And the scribes were there because they could always have a verse in the mind that they could twist, turn, and apply in a way that backed up their religious ways. It hasn't changed. Most religion in our day, in our culture... Whether it be, you know, overt cultural religion that has no parameters and no boundaries, it's just a gigantic group hug in the name of God, or whether it's the opposite extreme, which is legalism, which is just loaded down with rules and works, and you gotta do this, you gotta think like me, you gotta act like me, you gotta sing like me, you gotta worship like me, you gotta dress like me, you gotta carry the same version of the Bible I carry, you gotta be in my denomination, and so on and so on. Blah, you know how it goes, right? <laughs> well well, regardless, it, it would seem that most people that propagate that have some Bible verses. Yeah. And they know how to use them because it's like typically the only Bible verses they know. So they use them over and over and over again. And it just kind of supports their position. But, but Jesus can't be tricked with the Bible because mm, he's the author. And so we go further down. They're trying to reinforce these walls that he's tearing down and Jesus just shot blocks it. Jesus does not validate their religious walls. Jesus answered them. Notice they weren't talking to him, they were talking to the the disciples. But Jesus just stood up and said, boys, let me handle this. He says, those who are whole or well don't have need of a physician, only those who are sick. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners to repentance. So Jesus is saying to guys who have doctorates, they're the doctors of the Jewish law. Jesus says, you've got your doctorate, but I'm a doctor too. I'm actually a spiritual physician. And you guys used your enlightenment and your education and your power and your insight. You used it to declare all of people like Matthew and Levi and his friends, they're all sick. So your education has taught you they're sick. Stay away from them. I don't want to get infected. That's what religion says. Jesus says, yeah, I'm a physician. And what I know has taught me, they're sick. Therefore, I've got to get closer to them so I can make them well. Do you see that? Religion and Jesus both draw the right conclusion about Levi, Matthew, and all of his friends. But the difference is the heart posture. Religion says, ooh, sinners, wrong. Jesus says, oh, sinners, come. You see, friends, that's difference number one between Jesus and religion. So it's an opportunity for me to look at my heart because most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us probably have certain sins, certain behaviors certain elements of people in the world that we live in and we're pretty high on grace and mercy for for this type of sin and we can breed compassion on people that struggle in this area but then there's that one little slice and we say "Uh uh-uh no 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 i've got enlightenment i've got knowledge they're sinners run and what we want to do is we want to have the heart that Recognizes that it doesn't matter what their activity is, they need the grace, the mercy of God, and they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when we present the gospel and we do it in the, the, the love and the grace and the mercy of God and the truth of the scripture, not couching anything, not diminishing or diluting anything, but we go to them where they are with the physician's message, with his prescription of repentance and faith towards him. When we present it, if they will receive that, then friends, they will come to him and they'll be his. So let's go down into the second part of this. Jesus is open, but religion is closed. Secondly, Jesus majors on the internal. Religion fixates on the external. You ready to be stretched? Good. We see in verse number 33 the disease of comparison and criticism. They said to Jesus, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers And so do our disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, yours are always eating. Yours are throwing back a glass of wine. That's what the reference is there. Then you may not like that, but don't rewrite your Bible. Yours eat and drink. Now, the Pharisees, you would think they'd have better things to do, but their mission during this season was to follow Jesus around and watch what he was doing and watch what his disciples were doing. If you go back into the beginning of Luke chapter 5 and even earlier chapters, you're finding out that they were really struggling with this one named Jesus because they couldn't discount the miracles he was doing. They couldn't deny that the crowds were following him. I mean, when you cast demons out of people, which they couldn't do, when you're opening blind eyes, which they couldn't do, eventually when you're raising the dead, which there's no way that they could do. They, they, Jesus would be doing that in the next chapter. Um, they, they, they had a hard time just kind of dealing with him. They weren't going to wish him away. So what did they do? They, they spent almost two and a half years, more than two and a half years, following him around, trying to look for a way that they could get him. Waiting for him to misstep, waiting for him to say something or to do something. What You talk about futility. Yeah, we're just waiting on Jesus to mess up. Yeah, he kind of never did. <laughs> but that's what they were doing. And so here they are. And so they're saying, hey, look, you know, we didn't really believe John the Baptist's message about you. But we liked his style of ministry because he was an ascetic that means he denied himself he lived on nothing he wore the most bare minimum like not chic clothing he ate bugs and you would not even want him to come preach at your church he was so fringe and and then of course you know his his message was repent but he he was an ascetic he denied himself he fasted and and so they said yeah we didn't like what he said but we like we like what he did and uh By the way, we do the same thing. We we fast. We deny ourselves. And we're very rigid. And we're very disciplined. And we're very committed. And and you look at us, you know where we stand. And Jesus, when I look at your disciples, I can't tell the difference between them and Levi. It, It was all about what it looked like on the outside. And so that's what religion does. Religion will always invite you into the comparison contest. And it'll try to get you a PhD in it so that you walk around and you're always comparing yourself to others. There's only two conclusions that you can draw when you spend a long time comparing yourself to others. You're either going to come away really proud and say, I'm better than everybody. Or you're going to come away constantly defeated and demoralized saying, I am nothing. I am worthless. Look at them. I'll never be like them. It's a no-win situation. No wonder the devil sets up many religions to get people to enter into that because it's defeat one way or another. If you operate in pride thinking you're better than everybody, then you're not a candidate for the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you operate in defeatism, you're not operating in faith, so you're always assuming you're never going to measure up, and so you're constantly shamed and constantly guilty. That's what religion does. Religion never offers you anything healthy. And so we see this going on with them, and they're, they're inviting this, this comparison contest. And so Jesus, once again, he, I love the fact that he never gets mad. He never gets defensive. I mean, I know he flipped some tables, and you know he, he got in their face in the temple and everything. But when he's entering into this stuff, he's just so chill with this. Look at what he says. Jesus just introduces a, a brand new concept that the scribes and Pharisees never thought of. And it's the freedom... To consecrate and celebrate. He says this Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom's with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in those days. And so Jesus is talking about himself in the illustration. He presents himself in this moment as the groom and in those days of wedding celebration would last an extended period of time and there was much celebration. It was an awesome, nobody called for a fast in the middle of your wedding celebration week. I mean sometimes it would go on a month. I mean it would just be a, a crazy time of celebration and rejoicing and preparation. And and Jesus is saying, with me being with these disciples right now, it's a celebration. I'm with them. This is what they've been looking for. This is what I came for. This is me being with them. And it's actually a great thing. And scribes and Pharisees, you can get in on it if you want to. But if you don't want to, you need to know something. I'm not going to set up a funeral just to appease your sense of religion. And he says, the time's going to come where... I'm going to be taken away from them. And he's speaking of his crucifixion where the Son of God died on the cross of Calvary to pay for the sins of all mankind, your sins, my sins, their sins. He's saying that moment's going to come and they will fast and they will weep and they will mourn. But that's then and this is now. I, I, I do want to say this, and I know it risks offending the sensibilities of of cultural christianity that you might be more imbibed on than you're aware of friends we ought to be celebrating jesus christ are our gatherings are there time for solemn assemblies of course there are But that is not the normal vibe of the kingdom. You ought to be celebrating Jesus outside of this building, celebrating him in the family, celebrating him at school, celebrating him at work. And the closer you get to him, the more you'll realize the Zephaniah 3 reality that the Lord is actually singing and twirling and dancing and shouting over you because he loves the fact that you and he are one. And and, and yet for, for religion, religion says, well, that's undignified. And 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 that's not reverent. And 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 somewhere, especially in Western Christianity or Christian dumb, let me say it that way, this idea has been elevated and it's not been it's not been opposed. Nobody's countering this idea. What is the idea? That the more serious you are, the more spiritual you are. The more somber you are, the more spirit-filled you are. So in other words the fruit of the spirit the fruit of the spirit we're rewriting that text the fruit of the spirit is first of all seriousness. <laughs> it's not in there. It's not in there. And yet you would think that by the way we reveal christianity to the world it's like we listen the bulldogs are going to play for a national championship I'm prophesying that. I mean they're going to play they're going to play for that. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to be in my den going, hmm. (laughs) That run was pleasant, Nick Chubb. (laughs) Jake Fromm, that was a well-represented offensive uh, play. Nice throw, young man. (laughs) Amy will be upstairs because me and, and or me and Landon will be downstairs yelling. We'll be shouting. We'll be standing up. We'll have, you know, barbecue wing sauce on our face. I mean, but the idea now, that's the way we are about other stuff. But when we come together into the most important aspect of our identity and we come together to celebrate, it's like we walk in and we're like, don't wake up the Lord. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? Now, I'm I'm trying to do it in a way that's funny, but I'm also trying to do it in a way that'll have you that that really have been trained up that the most important thing about the kingdom is just keeping it, keep keep it down. Whereas I think sometimes the Lord might look at us and say, do they not know what I've done for them? Do they not know what they have? Come on, kids, you can do better than that. You know, I just, I feel like he says that sometimes. So you can be celebrational and still be consecrated. As a matter of fact, I don't know how consecrated we are if we don't feel like we have something to celebrate. And, And I just feel like the more consecrated I get, the more... You know, there's just moments where I'm like, man, I, this is about to be embarrassing, but I don't really care what anybody thinks, and I just get my worship on, amen? And that's coming from a 47-year-old kind of short, pudgy, white guy. But there's just times where I just, I, I mean, it's just, he's just too good just to politely nod. <laughs> All right, back to the Scripture. Look at the distinction between the Holy Spirit and the religious spirit down in verses 36, 37, 38, and 39. Okay, so he tells them a a parable. And you know the parable. I'm actually not going to unpack this much, but he he uses it here. Jesus says, no one tears a piece from a new garment. Say new. New garment and puts it on an old garment. Say old. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And Jesus now goes to the same principle illustrated in a different way. No one puts new wine, say new, new into old wineskins, say old. If he does, what happens? The new wine bursts the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. And then he gives you this mandate. He says the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And he says nobody after drinking the old wine desires new for he says the old is good. So very quickly here not going to belabor it too much, but the illustration that Jesus is giving to the scribes and the Pharisees is, hey, y'all don't understand what's happening here. This is something new. You're wanting me to fit this move of the Father into your rabbinic, pharisaical Judaism, which isn't even represent- representative of the actual law. It is yours. It's got your grubby little fingerprints all over it. And so you're wanting me to put this move that I am initiating, that I am going to climax in, that I am going to leave in the hands of the Holy Spirit who will empower the church. You're wanting me to stuff it into your old wineskin. And what you don't realize is that old wineskin can't handle what I'm about to do. See, I'm sure you guys have heard enough preaching on this, but for those that this is a new principle to, when, when that grape juice was squeezed and it was put into a wineskin, it, it ferments, and from the fermentation, gas comes. And so the wineskin has to have elasticity. It has to have flexibility so that as, as the wine takes on its potency, the, the wineskin will grow along with it. And what would happen if you took new wine and you put it into an old wineskin that had already been stretched and already been used, what happens is when it starts to develop its potency through fermentation, it would burst that old wineskin. And the principle that we have here, ladies and gentlemen, is that, and it's not just moving from Judaism into the new covenant. This principle is repeated in the history of the church because God has not quit doing new things. And so we cannot cram what God's about to do into the framework of, of what God once did. And and it is so incumbent upon us that we recognize when the Lord begins to move, you can't demand that he preserve your old favorite wineskin. You have to say, okay, it's new wine time, and the Lord is going to give us something that will be the apparatus through which this thing is stewarded that he's about to do. Religion has no appetite for a new wineskin. Religion builds shrines to old wineskins. And friends, there are components of that in our hearts. Because it's real easy to say, yeah, man, bring us the new. Come on, this is going to be great. And then the new thing displaces your favorite old thing. You're like, now, wait a minute. Hold on. It's, it's the way it works. That's why we're called to constantly live in a state of full surrender to the Lord. Because we're not actually allowed to tell him, Lord, you can do anything you want but that. Because in that moment, you're trying to exert yourself as being Lord and not honoring his lordship. And so when the new wine is coming, the Lord literally changes that thing on the outside. He changes the the visible means by which he facilitates his work. Sometimes it's different people. Sometimes it's different modes. Sometimes it's in a different place. There are all these things that the Lord can do. But ultimately, the joy is this. Lord, if you're pouring out new wine, I don't want to miss it. I want to drink it. I want to drink in what you're pouring out. But hands that clutch old wineskins are attached to people whose lips never drink new wine. And So if we are determined to hold on to old wineskins, we will never drink the new wine. What does that mean? It means as far as we come is as far as we'll ever go. And friends, I don't want to be anywhere stuck in the preservation of the idea of what God was doing. I I want to be in on what he's doing right now. And so do you. I mean, nobody in their right mind says, nope, I don't want to be in on what he's doing. I like what he used to do. I'm going to hang out there without him. You want to hang out there without him? If he's moving into something, you literally want to hang out there? Well, then then I'm just going to say this. A person that thinks like that, their God is their idea about God. Not who he actually is. It's who they want him to be. And so, as we see this, these scribes and Pharisees and embodying religion fixated on the external things. And Jesus said, No, it's not always a fast. Sometimes it's a feast. It's not always what we were used to imbibing, it is what he is pouring out now. And you can't fixate on the external, it's an internal move. So go down into chapter number six with me. I didn't read these verses. They won't be up on your screen, but I'm going to read you five verses from chapter six because we're, still, we're just progressing through Luke five and six. Let me give you this. Religion, excuse me, Jesus satisfies hunger, but religion suppresses it. Religion suppresses hunger. Look at this, this imagery here. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, verse 2. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God, that's the tabernacle, and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Wow. Now, if you were a first century Orthodox disciple of the Pharisees and the scribes, this would hit you with a lot more potency than it's hitting us with. The Sabbath was like the biggie. You, you did not want to mess with the traditional rabbinic views of the Sabbath. Um, The Sabbath was very simply put in Moses' law, but by the time we get to Jesus' day, and again, all sorts of leaders with religious ideas and traditions and authority and clout, they had augmented the law so that the Sabbath was now an unmanageable list of things you couldn't do. And they were broken down into different categories. And within those separate categories, there were subcategories. So that if you were the average Jewish citizen living in, in this area at that time, you're walking on eggshells. You're walking in fear because it's up to these powerhouse guys to tell you how to live on the Sabbath for the Lord. And instead of it being a blessing of rest unto you, it is now a fearful thing hanging over your head. And it was so important. That the Pharisees and the scribes are literally tracking Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath out in the fields of all places. I mean, I'm going to tell you something. Religious people are committed to their agenda. And they've they've got eyes on Jesus in the field. And so they're hungry. You know, they're leaving houses and homes and all this stuff. A lot of them did. Matthew gave up his business and Peter and John. And they're living by faith and following Jesus. And he told them not to take anything with them but to live by faith. And so they're out in the fields and they're hungry on the Sabbath. And they see some grain and they pop off a few of the heads of grain. And they're rubbing it together so the junk falls off. And they're they're eating the, the pure grain. And the Pharisees say, aha, they're cooking a meal on the Sabbath. They constituted the rubbing away of the chaff off the grain as work which breaks the Sabbath, and they raise the yellow flag, and they demand an answer of the Son of God. By the way, this would not be the last time that they protested Jesus' lack of affirming their view of the Sabbath. Let me give you this principle very quickly. the spirit of religion is never satisfied and so it's always looking for a wrong to put a point out and so many of us that have been born again are indwelt by the holy spirit we run the risk of not walking in joy not walking in power not walking in love not walking in relational a glory to where we're bringing God glory through our relationships because there's something within us that is trained to always be inspecting others. We're not even aware of it. It's like a day, a program running in the background and, and, and you're looking for something that's wrong. And then when it appears, your internal referee says, foul, and you blow a whistle on them. Now, a lot of us, one of, the, one of the other things about a religious spirit is that we know we're not allowed to do that. So we don't say anything, but we just let the referee or the Pharisee run around in our heart, saying, Did you see that person? Did you see what she said? Did you see what she wore? Did you see what she did? Did you see where they went? Did you see what he ate? Did you see what he drank? Did you see what they did on a Sunday? Did you see the movie that they went to? Did you see this? Did you see that? And the referee, and he's constantly talking to you. And you can't coddle your inner referee or your inner Pharisee. You can't play nice with them. Do you know what you have to do to the Pharisee inside of you? You have to crucify him. You have to crucify that Pharisee within you. But it's it's, it's hard for a religious spirit to do because they become so dependent on that inner Pharisee to make them feel good about where they are with the Lord. So if I'm not listening to my Pharisee and he's not pointing out what's wrong with anybody else and that voice is gone and and then all of a sudden I have to take my identity and what Jesus has done for me, not in the fact that I think I'm better than the other Christians. (laughs) This is tough stuff, but I'm going to tell you something. That's why so many Christians aren't operating in joy. You don't have time for joy because you're the fruit inspector. (laughs) (laughs) And so they're following him out in a cornfield. And, 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 they, and, and Jesus gets biblical with them. Jesus says, aren't you guys the Bible scholars? Don't you remember in 1 Samuel, maybe 23? Don't you remember when David was on the run and he walked into the tabernacle and they were starving and the only thing that was left was yesterday's uh, bread of presents that the priest had removed and Abiathar gave him that old bread, and they ate it, and nobody was supposed to eat that bread except the priest. And yet, David saw that the spirit of the law would allow for him to feed his men, even if the letter of the law said, Don't touch that bread. And then Jesus says, This he says, And I'm not David, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he said. He said, The son of man, which is a messianic term, which all of the Bible scholars would have said, Prophet Ezekiel, son of man, David, uh, Daniel, son of man, he's declaring himself to be our Messiah, and he just declared himself Lord over the Sabbath. In other words, he's saying he doesn't have to listen to us. That's right. That's good, huh? You know, when when we look at that, it's in the context of hunger. They were hungry religion said you can't be satisfied jesus said i will satisfy you if you've ever and it just might be a good time for if you've ever felt bitterness towards the church you've been wounded by christians and man we listen we we're not perfect we're not in glory yet we make we make mistakes and sometimes we hurt people in the process and it it's never our design but you know we're susceptible to failure and sometimes that failure splashes on people that are trying to find Jesus and they say if that's man if that's what Jesus is about man I, that stuff doesn't satisfy me. I'm looking for something different. I'm hungry for something different. And, the, and religion presents something that leaves you hungry. Let me just ask you one more time. Will you please press into Jesus? Because he will never leave you hungry. He'll never leave you hungry. And so the very last thing, I, I know what time it is. I said I wasn't going to look at my watch, but I did look at my iPad. So it's telling me just a few more moments. A little further down into chapter number six. And I'm going to read just verses 6 through 11. If you've got your Bible open, you can follow. So on another Sabbath, these are all back to back. Everything we've read is just boom, boom, boom. It's the Holy Spirit saying, I want you in several consecutive passages to see the difference between the Son of God and religion. It's, it's in there. I believe the Lord was sovereign in ordering that what is now our chapters. I believe that he wants us to see here. It's, it's repetition. The Lord is saying, there's a difference between my son and man's religion. And so on another Sabbath, Jesus entered a synagogue and and, and he was teaching that day. And a man was there whose right hand was withered and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him because that's all they could do at this point to see whether Jesus would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they could find a reason to accuse him. (laughs) Verse 8, but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus says to them, by the way, Matthew indicates that Jesus looked around that room in anger on those people. Jesus was mad that day. Luke doesn't supply it, but Matthew does. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he did so... (sighs) The man's hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Another gospel says, how they might kill Jesus. This is where my mind just goes, this is the intensity and the extent of the blindness of religion. Now, walk with me through this. So there's a crisis in the synagogue on the Sabbath that creates a standoff. What's the crisis? It's described in verse 6 and 7. That Jesus enters the synagogue, he's teaching, and the man was there who had a withered right hand. It was palsied or it was paralyzed, there was something wrong with it. And the scribes and the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Why? Not so they could celebrate a healing so that they could accuse him of breaking a Sabbath law. This is how far religion can take you. That you will miss all of the good that God is doing because you're fixating on something you want God to do, but he's not doing. So you can't get in on what God's doing because you're not, or it's either... Sometimes you don't think it's God not doing what you're wanting him to do. You think it's God's representatives, God's people. So you're saying, so the, the dude's standing there. He goes to that synagogue regularly probably, probably. And the Pharisees can't help him. You can't Bible study somebody into a healing. You can't. I'm, I'm a word guy. But you, you, you can't Bible. There has to be some authority and some power to reverse natural affliction. And so they couldn't do that. But what's amazing is in their impotence spiritually, they didn't look at Jesus and say, Jesus, this man is part of the synagogue, and we, we know that you heal people. He needs a healing, and we can't do it, Master. Will you heal him? They weren't watching to see if he would do it so they could say, thankfully. Our brother's arm has been restored. They're watching and they're saying, let's see if he does this. Let's see if he has the audacity to try to change this man's life on a day like the Sabbath where we don't change lives. We have our church meeting on on the Sabbath day. There'll be no life changing in this place. It's a Sabbath. So now we got a standoff. We got Jesus versus religion. And don't miss this. There's a life hanging in the balance. See, that's what we forget. We forget that there's somebody caught in the crossfire. And and religion is the only one pulling out a weapon, by the way. Religion's the only one trying to inflict harm. Jesus is coming for healing. But religion is saying we're going to stand our ground against the very move of God. So verse 8, 9, and 10. Jesus, and I watch this. Y'all, hang with me just a few more minutes. Jesus intentionally provokes the religious spirit. Jesus doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He don't, doesn't frame it up in a diplomatic. Well, let me read the verse. Here we go. He knew their thoughts. And boy, they were at a disadvantage. He knew their thoughts, and he says to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. So Jesus has been teaching. Jesus is in a central position in the room, and he tells the man with the withered hand, I want you to come stand front and center. And the man does it. And Jesus says to them, let me ask you a question. Is the Sabbath broken when we do good on it, or is the Sabbath broken if we do harm on it? Is the Sabbath broken if I am to save a life, or is the Sabbath broken if I were to destroy a life? And of course, they don't have an answer. They never had a good one. Verse 10. And after looking around at them, and again, with anger, one of the other gospel writers said, he just looks at the man and he says, stretch out your hand. And uh, he did so. And his his hand was restored. He, He got healed. He had a supernatural healing, and he got a portion of his life back that through some other event, or maybe he was born with it, had, he had never had before, or he'd had taken away. And Jesus just radically transformed his life. Nobody shouted. <laughs> no, nobody celebrated. Why? Because that was the place where religion ran the show. And Jesus came in there and provoked it. Hear me on this. God is raising up more and more in this season a generation of reformers. And reformers look at the status quo, and they say, hey, that's not right. That's not God. That's not biblically authentic. That's not the heart of Jesus. That's religion. And they won't stand for it. Now, they're often known as troublemakers. They're often known as, you know, they got an ax to grind. They're often called bitter. Well, you're just bitter with, with the church. Sometimes it's actually that they are full of the Holy Spirit and God's going to use some people to say enough is enough. And he's raising up some people. Now, we need to do it like Jesus did. You know, Jesus make a, made a bad situation better for a lot of people. It's It's a defiant kind of unruly spirit that makes a bad situation worse. But I'm going to tell you, either way, you've got to risk it. And so Jesus risked messing up the church service that day. and He just messed up the church. He... It's, it, the equivalent would be him walking into a church today that's got a leader, a, a group of leaders that are so full of themselves, so impressed with themselves, they run a tight ship, they've got it under control, they've got things exactly they want, the way they want, and then somebody gives Jesus the mic, and he literally says, oh, y'all are doing it all wrong, and guys, let me show you what real kingdom looks like, and Jesus just touches lives, and they get changed. I do believe some of that's going on. And Jesus, I just want you to know, Jesus intentionally provoked the religious spirit. He, he literally provoked him. He said, I'm not going to let you hide in the shadows. Tell me, Sabbath keepers, tell me, is it okay if I do something good on your Sabbath? See, he asked them questions that they couldn't answer. They're like, hold on, we'll get back to you in just a second on that. And they get in their little holy huddle and they're like, we got nothing. Because religion doesn't have any answers for spirit. And so when they didn't answer, Jesus said, okay, let me answer it for you. And he heals the guy. He heals the guy. So you would think, I I, I don't know, let me just ask you this. Raise your hand if you've ever witnessed firsthand a bona fide healing. Would you raise your hand? I've seen a couple. So that's less than half of us in the room. If you saw a man's hand, arm, and I'm not trying to be cute or disrespectful, but it was withered in some way, and if you've witnessed that first hand in your midst become whole, wouldn't you kind of lose it? You would think that the the Pharisees would lose it. Well, they didn't. They just kind of lost it in a different direction, and I'm almost done. Worship team, come on up, please. Religion proves itself in the end blind, Impotent and obstinate. And I chose those words on purpose. Blind, impotent, and obstinate. Blind in that they couldn't see the kingdom reality. Impotent in that they couldn't accomplish kingdom reality. And obstinate in that when kingdom reality was being accomplished, they hardened their heart. And so it says this, they were filled with fury. They got mad at a healing. What? What? And and so they called a business meeting. And it was a one-item business meeting. How do we kill Jesus? How do we kill him? Because on the Sabbath, he set somebody free. On the Sabbath, he changed a life. On the Sabbath, he healed the man. And we can't be having none of that we've got to kill him. Isn't that incredible? So you and I can give ourselves a free pass here, right? Because we're not looking to kill Jesus. We love Jesus. We're not looking to prevent healing. We want to see healing and salvation and transformation and deliverance and baptisms, and impartation. We want to see all the good stuff, right? I'm just going to ask this. Do you welcome him to do it through the wineskin of his own making? Or does he have to wrap it in ours? That's the key. That is where he has us. Because I want to tell you, he is ready for healings. He is ready for impartations. He is ready, ready for salvations on a level that neither Cornerstone, Meadow, or Newbridge has ever seen. He's ready to do that. But He's only going to do it to the extent that we the people yield and say, we're not instructing you. We're not telling you what to do and what not to do. We're just surrendering to you. Here's my old wine skin. I loved what you used to pour in it. It was really, really good. And everything I ever drank from it drew me, drew me closer to you and I thank you for it. And you're showing me that it's, it's out of wine and it's brittle and although it's familiar and I really, really liked carrying it, I know it's time to, to just set it down. But Lord, I'm still thirsty and your word says you always have new wine. So Lord, when, when I'm asking you and telling you that I want the new wine, I want what you're about to pour out. But I'm also saying, you're gonna have to supply the new wineskin, and because I trust you, I'm really okay with what that looks like. Just pour it into that, and then let me taste it. And so Father, in the name of Jesus, We bring whatever remnant of the old Pharisee is still running around in our hearts. And we approach the shadow of your cross. And by faith, we nail the old Pharisee to your cross. And we say that we're not going to listen to him anymore as he gasps and dies. We're not going to be afraid of his accusations. And we're not going to be obedient to his unbiblical demands. And so we're asking, Lord, as his voice grows extinguished, we're asking, Holy Spirit, that your voice becomes predominant. We're willing to walk in a new way with you. We're willing to say yes to whatever you highlight. And we're really eager to taste the new wine. In Jesus' name, amen.